The content of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice, is for informational purposes only, and cannot be used in any legal capacity. I'm Dr. John Sylvester, radiation oncologist and brachytherapist with 21st Century Oncology. I'm here with Alex C., radiation oncologist, University of Washington now. And we're going to talk about uh, prostate brachytherapy, what's going on with um, its uh, decline in use, mm-hmm. and what we might be able to do to try to bring it back up to levels it used to be at. So in terms of a brachytherapy, obviously the, the results have been excellent. And we can talk about the ASCEND-RT trial, the JAMA study from 2018, etc. With studies like this, are, is this what you're doing to talk to your patients about brachytherapy? What do you do to explain to them yeah. why you recommend brachytherapy over other modalities? Yeah, I think what these studies do is they prove what we've all known as brachytherapists, that you need to deliver high dose to the prostate to control uh, particularly intermediate and especially high-risk prostate cancer. So for, uh, for many years, uh, I've combined external beam and brachytherapy for intermediate and high-risk prostate cancer. Uh, and um, some of these studies just bear out what uh, the principles of delivering uh, high doses to the prostate for uh, both local control and uh, overall uh, cancer control. And when you talk to your patients in the, in the clinic, do you have a handout that you show them or do you, have a, um, you quote specific studies or just tell them in general that... I do. I do quote specific studies. I do quote the ASCEND-RT trial. And, of course, I also show them. Uh, I have some print printouts of graphs from the Prostate Cancer Results Study Group uh, tr- uh, comparative effectiveness trial, uh, which clearly show the advantages of combined external beam and brachytherapy compared to other treatments for intermediate and high-risk prostate cancer. And at this point in time, you're about the only surviving brachytherapist in the Seattle region which was the, the birthplace, really, of modern brachytherapy. And um, what's going on at the other centers up there that yeah. they're not doing brachytherapy any, anymore? What's driving people away from brachytherapy in the Seattle area? Well, yeah, what you said is very true. Um, you know, and I credit yourself and some of your old colleagues with really developing you know, and putting brachytherapy on the map uh, in this country. And I think that... Part of the problem is is that brachytherapy does require some skill and training, and uh, and uh, over the years, uh, many of the uh, uh, residency programs, the, the experience and the training has tailed off due to uh, uh, interest, reimbursement, and uh, um, the uh, the special skill set that it requires to do brachytherapy. And in other parts of the country, Eurorads is driving a lot of patients to external beam, which some academic radiation oncologists don't like that because it takes patients away from their practices. But obviously, patients in general are treated with uh, radiation rather than surgery in that situation. Is there much of that presence going on in the Seattle area, driving people away from brachytherapy? Yeah. Fortunately, I would say there is less of that. There is a center in, in the greater Seattle area, but it's nothing like it is in many other parts of the country, uh, in the East Coast and in the South. So we're still relatively insulated from that. Uh, in my mind, the, the um, decrease in brachytherapy is more in, in general reimbursement and lack of uh, 
train brachytherapists. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think uh, I would like to spend the remaining 10, 12 years of my career, I think, is we do really have to focus on uh, training the next generation. And so uh, in my role at the university, I would like to I plan to increase uh, uh, the, uh, the training program. We're looking in, I'm looking into uh, newer and more modern ways of training, looking at virtual simulation and hands-on simulation in addition to real patient care uh, in order to uh, uh, improve the, the skills of the trainees. Yeah, a lot of communities around the country brachytherapists that are, are busy have a group of urologists they work closely with that uh, are in favor of doing brachytherapy and um, and that's not true everywhere but how do you deal with uh, urologists in the area that are anti-brachytherapy say they want to do robotic surgery on anybody mm-hmm. as long as they're, they can get through anesthesia yeah well I think that that is a challenge I think there's a couple of different ways you can go about that which all of which can be utilized Obviously, first and foremost is showing them the data that, uh, that, that shows the superior outcomes of brachytherapy, both as monotherapy and combined treatments. The other thing is to also look at uh, reimbursement, uh, uh, or actually not reimbursement, but uh, many urologists are employed these days, particularly in Seattle, and they're uh, uh, paid on RV, an RVU-based system. And if you actually look at the RVU-based uh, system, the, the, the productivity for, say, a single case of brachytherapy is probably on the order of three-quarters of the RVUs that you may, they may receive doing a prostatectomy. And on an hourly basis, that's a, uh, that's a, actually brachytherapy comes out ahead uh, because a prostatectomy could take three hours, maybe four hours brachytherapy procedure, 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Now, there was discussion in this meeting, there's <clears throat> been discussion in the past, but it looks like it's coming closer to fruition that uh, there may be a, a bundled payment plan for prostate cancer coming up. Exactly how that's going to roll out, we still don't know yet, but if that does happen, how do you expect that to affect volumes and why? I think that's a great question. There are still many unknown answers because the Rules have not yet come out. They will be coming out shortly, though. Uh, as we heard in the uh, uh, in the conference today, uh, probably in the next two to three weeks, we'll find out a lot more about the alternative uh, payment model. In general, I think that would likely be a good thing for brachytherapy. Brachytherapy is a cost-effective way to treat prostate cancer, and I think as we move away from fee-for-service, and a fixed payment model, brachytherapy will uh, be looked upon as an efficient and cost-effective method compared to uh, full-course IMRT or even surgery. Right. Now, as far as uh, misconceptions with brachytherapy go, there's a lot of them out there. You mentioned that you use external beam and brachytherapy for high-risk patients and intermediate-risk patients. Uh, you hear some of the community and some urologists that are actively practicing saying brachytherapy is fine for low-risk disease but not for high-risk disease. Again, you deal with data as far as that goes? Uh, absolutely. I think there are, uh, there are data on local control 
in the fact that uh, combined high dose or high BED uh, or biologically effective doses to the prostate are better at local control and you achieve those really best by doing combined external beam and brachytherapy. There are other myths around increased toxicity as well and I think uh, that is something I do address with a lot of my patients. Some of that comes from our own data. Some of that comes from the Ascend RT trial and the fact that they did see a relatively high uh, grade three GU toxicity rate. Uh, I, in my practice, I find my toxicity rates are much lower, and I do think that that is an operator-dependent issue, and uh, there are uh, techniques that I use that help me avoid those things, and I do um, address those issues with my patients. Right, and plus in the, RS, in the Ascend RT trial, a lot of that toxicity was urethral strictures that were cured by doing a few dilations. That's correct. Which is, of course, a lot less toxic for most people than failing external beam and being on hormone therapy the rest of your life. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when it comes to hormone therapy, what's your use of hormone therapy and brachytherapy? Uh, with monotherapy, I don't use it because I'm usually treating patients with low and low intermediate risk disease with monotherapy. For those with high intermediate or high risk prostate cancer, I do add neoadjuvant androgen suppression therapy. Typically, we'll, we'll limit it to 12 to 18 months with combined therapy. If patients have very advanced prostate cancer, I might extend that to a two-year course. And how about a patient who's a good candidate for brachytherapy, uh, monotherapy, or otherwise, who doesn't need hormone therapy, but his prostate's too large? Mm -hmm. and you need to downsize them. How do you do, deal with that? Yeah, I think uh, patients who have large prostates, I do downsize them, and I will put them on typically three months of Lupron, and uh, you typically will see a reduction in volume of up to a third, sometimes even 50%, and oftentimes if you have a... 60, 70, maybe 80 cc gland, it's usually, you can achieve a proper size. Have you tried using a combination of bicalutamide and finasteride or dutasteride? I have for those patients who are uh, fearful or worried about the side effects of Lupron. We have used finasteride, uh, even alone. And you do get some shrinkage. It's typically not as uh, uh, effective as Lupron, but for patients with borderline uh, 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 size prostates, it can do the trick. Mm -hmm. Now, getting back to uh, the training uh, program, what, what kind of methods are you looking at or thinking about doing uh, in your practice now that you're part of the University of Washington and have actually a lot of residents at your disposal? you have any particular ideas on how you want to deal with that? Yeah, I think, as I said before, I think uh, one thing that I wish I had when I was a resident was more simulation training, and I think the technology is, is improving and there are ways to do that. I think doing uh, cases, multiple cases on phantoms uh, before you get into the operating room and developing a sense of confidence uh, and, and about this procedure is important uh, and it will make uh, doing real cases go much smoother. So I think a bigger emphasis on that for the 
residents in their first few years such that by the time they get to uh, becoming PGY 4s, 4s and 5s, they already have a good background and uh, can do more real cases with a greater sense of confidence. I think doing more in terms of planning, sometimes the residents don't get enough training in doing brachytherapy planning, and I think it's very important for all brachytherapists to do their own planning so that they understand how uh, changes in seed position, et cetera, affect, um, uh, affect their uh, both intra-op and post-operative dosimetry. So I think that's important, and, and doing a little bit more longitudinal care is important because uh, seeing patients who had complications is very educational. I think that uh, you learn, in, in many ways, you learn from your mistakes, and uh, seeing, seeing patients over a period of a few years is important uh, and helps, uh, helps you grow as a radiation oncologist in general. Mm-hmm. And as far as decreasing toxicity, uh, we, we know dosimetry is important. <clears throat> Trying to avoid overdosing the urethra, of course, is important. There's technical ways of doing that. Um, but also, as far as rectal toxicity goes, uh, people are starting to use uh, space ore now. And how do you utilize that in terms of your patient flow? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I your use combination patients in right. particular. Uh, I use space ore very frequently in in that situation. Essentially, anyone who has receives external beam as a component of their treatment gets space ore hydrogel. My typical uh, Sequencing today is that I'll place, uh, uh, for, for combination patients, I'll place space or and gold fiducial markers first, do their external beam, and followed by the seeds. And have it run into pubic arch issues? That, that can be an issue, I think, as the, the, the gel does elevate the prostate and it can push it up against the uh, pubic arch. And typically you're doing brachytherapy, if you're doing first external beam and brachytherapy. The brachytherapy still occurs two and a half, three months from the placement of the space or, and the, the gel does last a good three and, or to three and a half months before it starts to break down. So there are little tricks you can do to, to, to adjust for that. The first thing I do intraoperatively is uh, 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 flex the legs back to open up the pelvis. We'll also uh, drop any water that might be in a brachy balloon standoff uh, or drop the probe itself to lower the prostate to give yourself some room. The other thing I like to do uh, these days is do a CT pubic arch uh, and volume study before they start treatment. At that point in time, you can then identify patients who have a narrow arch or who have a somewhat enlarged prostate. Those patients I flag as potential problem patients when we do the brachytherapy boost. So what you can do is, when you place the space or gel uh, and gold fiducial markers initially, you can take a few brachytherapy needles and place them up along the anterior of the prostate to see if you have pubic arch interference right after you've placed the gel. And so if you do find that, then you can change positions uh, and actually record what those are. I'll actually physically take a photo of the leg position uh, and uh, also uh, record on in the ultrasound machine where the where the uh, uh, posterior prostate lies in order for me to successfully place needles, mm-hmm. and that makes your uh, implant go much smoother and much quicker when you get to that point. And as we all know, I think that's 
uh, that's the, the key to a successful program is being able to do it quickly and, uh, and uh, not delay your urology colleagues when we're doing brachytherapy. Yeah, so you're doing that brachy with urologist in the room usually or? Typically, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find that's a good way of going. You want to keep them involved with the procedure mm-hmm. and that way as a team approach, patients appreciate that. And then if there are any complications, they own those complications too. So uh, now as yeah. far as um, pubic arch evaluation, what I've been doing actually was uh, a little technique trick that uh, Steve uh, Langley and, and Robert Lang developed in, in Europe, in Guilford. In England is when I do the ultrasound volume study, I take, at the end of the study, I just take a piece of printer paper, tape it to the ultrasound image, just right onto the screen, turn the light off in the room, and I scroll down my probe to where the arch is narrow, and I outline the arch on the piece of paper. Then I scroll up to where the prostate's big, I outline where the prostate's big, and then there's no guesswork like with the CT scan, because you know exactly with the same equipment you're going to use the AOR, what the pubic arch situation is. And if I see some blockage, then I'll drop the probe angle down and see how that affects mm-hmm. things. Yeah. And so that's, that's been helpful because some of these guys, even with relatively small prostates, once in a while you run into some major arch issues where you might not have done a CT arch study on them mm-hmm. otherwise. Well, yeah, I think that's a, that's a nice technique. Uh, I do uh, CT pubic arch uh, studies on everybody, though, uh, before I, uh, anyone has brachytherapy. And so you can import a very uh, a limited non-contrast pelvic CT into your treatment planning system, uh, whether it be, uh, you know, ARIA or Eclipse or Ray Station, one of the external beam planning uh, mm-hmm. software that you may use. You can do a 3D reconstruction of the pubic arch and the prostate. And what I do is I tilt the, 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 the patient because you'll have a diagram of the patient on the side and you can tilt them to, to approximate dorsal orthotomy position. Uh, now it's true that's not an exact thing. You do have to start to, you have to do a few to understand how far to tilt it back to represent what it looks like in dorsal orthotomy. Right. But after you do a few, you can be pretty accurate that way as well. Excellent. What else do you do to help decrease toxicity of brachytherapy other than your technique? Patient mm-hmm. selection issues, uh, medication. Say somebody has uh, severe dysuria and, then, and it's not responding well, say, to your standard uh, uh, tamsulosin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if they have, uh, you mean post-treatment, post-brachytherapy. Post-brachytherapy yeah. is, say, a year after treatment. They get a flare-up of the urinary symptoms yeah. or whatever. You do see that on occasion. And I think uh, the, the first and easiest thing to do is to try non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Sometimes that can reduce some of that sense of urgency and, and, and burning sensation, which I believe is likely just due to bladder neck irritation and, and referred um, discomfort from So you have a patient on warfarin, and warfarin or has GI issues, not right. allowed to take any non-steroidals. So then you move to second-line medical therapy, which would be... Yeah, your anticholinergic medications, uh, uh, things like oxybutynin and that family of medications. The difficulty with those is that uh, there are side effects to those medications, dry mouth, dry eyes, constipation, etc. And anybody who I place on those medications, I'll also get a post-void residual uh, 
check on them to make sure they're not in reten retaining because those medications can throw people into retention, urinary retention as well. There's some newer uh, uh, medications as well that have less side effects and we'll use some of those as well. Right, although they take a little longer to kick in for the they benefit. Do. Yes. Right, so that's, that's pretty much what I've been doing to the uh, maximize alpha blockage first, and if that didn't do the job, then go for the non-steroidals. If that didn't do the job, then add um, the anticholinergics. Uh, once in a while, low-dose steroids, and for a patient with really severe pain that's just not responding to anything, I've actually found that low-dose oxycodone, codon, or uh, Percocet have been very helpful for some of these guys. So just take like half a pill in the morning and half a pill at bedtime, and then it gets them yeah. through things. And, and typically, by the time you run through that entire litany of medical therapies, uh, that, that take, by the time you get through all of that, typically these sorts of flares are resolved. Yeah, they do go so, away on their own eventually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you tell your patients when you first see them? Like, warn them that a certain percentage are going to have this sort of urinary flare, mm -hmm. but it's temporary? Yeah. I think you, the, the, the key is preparing your patients, and when they're prepared and they know they're going to experience certain side effects, they tolerate it much better because they know this is something that's expected and something that is self-limited. I think that's the key. So patient education is key. I, I tell them, look, in after within a week, you're going to notice a lot of frequency and urgency, and that's going to last for a good month, and then it'll start to, to improve, but it'll take another at least three to six months for things to settle down. And, uh, and so uh, uh, education, I think, is key to getting people through that initial phase of therapy. Exactly. Yeah, I like to um, go through my whole usual spiel with them, but then on the back page, write columns, radical prostatectomy, external beam plus androgen ablation, external beam and brachytherapy, and then write down relapse-free survival outcomes, mm -hmm. overall survival outcomes. Start with overall survival because it's, it's usually the same, Correct. unless you're Gleason 9 and 10 where Actually, the, the brachy looks better. Mm -hmm. But uh, then you get into this relapse survival issue, and that's where I really try to explain to them. If you do external beam, cancer comes back. You could do salvage brachy mm -hmm. in some of these patients, but a lot of the patients end up on hormones the rest of their life, yeah. and the toxicity of that's not insignificant. Right. And obviously, the toxicity of surgery mm -hmm. is significant compared to brachy or external beam. Yeah, I think that's an evolving field, recurrence of prostate cancer. And I think the first thing... I try and educate my patients about is that it can recur either locally or distantly or both. If there's a distant component to their recurrence, everybody goes on hormone therapy. But the, in terms of a local recurrence, first of all, if they're doing brachytherapy as a component of their treatment, that risk is very low. And I think that's important to stress because, I'll be honest with you, many patients come to me after having uh, uh, discuss treatment with the urologist saying, well, my doctor says I, you know, I can do radiation after surgery, but I can't do surgery after radiation, so I should do the surgery first. And I think that's, uh, that's a bit misleading because that rate of local only recurrence is very low. The data would suggest it's maybe 3%. And so, you're, you know, the, in a patient with high-risk disease, I tell them your, your risk of local-only recurrence is very low. Most of those recurrences are distant. And in that situation, it doesn't matter what, whether you've had radiation or surgery first or second. Right. So say you got, we didn't talk about this on the other discussions, 
but you've got a patient who had IMRT in the past and now his PSA is going up gradually, what do you do? Mm -hmm. So uh, th things are a little different in that the, the, the paradigm for me is, is uh, uh, I think there, there's potential for uh, focal local you know, uh, therapy for local recurrence. So what I typically will do now is initially start with a metastatic workup. So they will get a CT and a bone scan first. And I'll do this, by the way, when their PSA gets into that 2, 3 range rather than waiting until it's 8 or 10. Or an Oxman scan now. Yeah, so that's the next step. So the, the first step is CT bone scan. If that's negative, they then go on to an Axiomen scan. And uh, for Medicare patients, it's almost required that they have a negative uh, PET scan or a negative bone scan and CT before they'll pay for an Axiomen scan. Exactly. So that's what we'll do next is an Axiomen scan. If that's negative for distant disease, they actually move on to the next, what I call the next hurdle, which is, okay, we need to prove that you have local recurrence. And so uh, these days I will uh, do a uh, MR fusion transperineal mapping biopsy. And in those, those biopsies which are done, a technique which is very similar to brachytherapy, you, uh, you can map out, well, where is the recurrence? Uh, and if it is a focal recurrence, <coughs> they actually now become candidates for what I would call focal salvage brachytherapy. Um, or really any focal uh, 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 local therapy. So that would include also HIFU and cryotherapy as well. Mm -hmm. Exactly, so when you do your, your MRI fusion transperineal mapping biopsies, uh, I assume you're, you're putting extra needles into where the lesion is seen on the MRI scan. Uh, but then still doing a moderate saturation of the rest of the prostate to prove that that's really the only area that has significant disease. Yeah, that's exactly right. I will do a saturation biopsy, keeping the spacing between each biopsy at a centimeter or less, and then we'll put in two or three extra biopsies into any MRI-identified lesions. Great. Is there anything else you wanted to uh, mention that you were thinking of today? Um, no, I don't think so. I think the, 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 the takeaway from uh, this year's uh, breaky, uh, ABS meeting, I think, is it's time that uh, we focus on training the next generation. I think the, the, the uh, John, you and your colleagues really set the stage for brachytherapy over the past 20 years, uh, but I think it is time to to train the next and uh, I think we need to spend more effort and I personally am going to take on that challenge to uh, try and uh, train the next generation of brachytherapists because it's a uh, it's a good treatment and uh, it needs to stay within the armamentarium of prostate cancer treatment. All right thank you for your time. You're welcome thanks thanks for having me. One question possibly about, I think it was all great, so maybe one thing, was there any session here or any poster that was discussed that stood out for you guys? Is there anything that was fascinating? Right. There was, um, actually, there was, uh, there was a, a discussion in the first day, a uh, paper presented by a resident from Princess Margaret. She actually won one of the uh, residents' awards today. And that was looking at the long-term outcomes at Princess Margaret uh, University of Toronto 
with LDR brachytherapy versus hypofractionated uh, external beam radiation for intermediate risk disease. And, and what they found, even though the numbers weren't very large, was that the distant metastatic disease-free survival for intermediate risk prostate cancer was significantly better than with, with LDR than it was with hypofractionated IMRT. So we've seen other studies presented here that distant metastatic disease-free survival is an excellent surrogate for long-term outcomes. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was that was an interesting paper. Did you have any in particular you liked? Um, no, but I think going along with what you said, I think is an important and newer thought process about prostate cancer, and that local therapy, local control matters, and that uh, uh, there are newer studies showing that uh, treating oligometastatic disease, uh, patients have a longer survival if you can control their prostate cancer locally as well as distantly, and I think that. Uh, again, the best way to control that is going to still be brachytherapy, whether it's hypofractionated radiation or standard fractionated external beam radiation therapy, the BED is still not going to be as high as brachytherapy, and that's your really your best chance at controlling disease at the source. Right. Have you treated any of those patients? I have, actually. I've got one gentleman who's about three years out now who had uh, a... Uh, uh, prostate cancer with a single metastasis to the spine. So I treated the spine stereotactically and treated brachytherapy t- to the prostate. And knock on wood, he's still doing good three years later. And what's your dose to the spine when you do that? Uh, that's a good question. I think it was somewhere in the range of about uh, uh, 2,700, 900 times three. Three? Yeah, that's what I've done. Like that. Nine grade times three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was an R2G protocol for that. I just kind of copied that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's exactly the same thing we're doing. Mm. Uh, and those guys are on hormone therapy. I put them on hormone therapy right. for a, a longer duration of time, exactly, of course, yeah. really kind of more long term mm-hmm. uh, for those patients. Yeah. I, in general, use a shorter duration of hormone therapy for guys that have, you know, local, local disease. disease. I agree.